Amen. Well, good morning, uh, CBC. Grace and peace to you. Uh, This morning, as you can tell, we are starting a series in the Psalms. Now, the plan here is not to run through each Psalm consecutively, um, but to kind of use them to intersperse our regular um, sermon series. So we're going to be in Colossians not too long from now, but I want to start off with the first three or four Psalms, and then when we need a break, we'll turn to the Psalms every now and then, but we'll get started with them. So I want to begin this morning by asking a question, and that is, what person or ideology or desire has your ear? So that when it speaks, you listen. Now consider that question for a moment, mull it over in your heart, and we will return to it later. Again, what person or ideology or desire has your ear so that when it speaks, you listen? Now Psalm 1 begins with the progression, a stagnation really, from walking to sitting, or rather from walking to standing to sitting. And it's a progression The psalm says that the blessed man or woman does not make. Now, it has not told us what blessing is, but it has told us what blessing is not. Again, verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So the psalm envisions a downward path a greased slope that it's quite easy to find ourselves on. And on this path, the pitch is so steep that one thing leads to another fairly rapidly. A leisurely stroll becomes a sightseeing affair, which becomes a fixed stay. Until, at the end of their journey, one has taken their seat among the scoffers, and now they have neither the inclination nor the will to climb the steep path home. And what it speaks to, this progression, walking, standing, sitting, is the ease and the effortlessness it takes to wind up in the wrong place. A bit like the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, He thought that the good life awaited him in the distant country. And so he set out from home, and he arrived there, but one thing led to another, and he wound up nearly starved to death. Now, I'm not generally a fan of slippery slope arguments, but in this case it applies. Our feet are not on fixed ground. And who hasn't in their life had that moment of self-realization and thought, how did I get here? Right? It was only a swim. How did I get caught in the current and swept out to sea? We have that moment where we look back on our lives and we realize, almost shocked, that we cannot see the shore anymore. We've just drifted so far from where we wanted to be. And it's really hardly ever by bounds and leaps that a person runs off into apostasy. That a person runs off into a life contrary to the Lord, but rather it's little by little, unnoticed until the distance has become so vast that it is no longer unnoticeable. So we have this image conveyed of 
of, of stagnation, of, of, of progression. And so that stagnation is the other image conveyed. Again, first walking, then standing, then sitting with attachment to this downward path becoming more and more habitual. As a person progresses, rather as a person regresses, there is less and less movement until they become fixed in their ways, seated in this path of life. Now, it speaks to the way unrighteous behavior embeds itself in our nature, a kind of spiritual arthritis that hardens itself into our souls. One may want to stand up and take the path homeward, but habit keeps them firmly seated. The desire to leave is present, to rise up from the seat of the scoffers and to return to that original place of blessing. The desire is there, but the power, the ability to actually do that is not. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, there is a different law in the members of my body waging war against my soul and making me a prisoner. Bound by the law of sinful habit, one's will is held prisoner to their body's passions and therefore they cannot get up and leave as they would like to. So quite obviously, such a path walking, standing, sitting, is not the path that leads to blessing. And the person who obtains blessing does not take that path. Again, blessed is the man who does not, the psalm reads. Rather, the one who attains blessing in their life, the one who, it can be said, they're planted by the streams of water, is one who is cautious about their steps. Someone who is always aware of the path that they take and where it leads. Where this road that their feet are walking down is ultimately going. As the proverb says, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3, the prudent, or the wise, sees evil and hides himself. But the naive go on and are punished for it. So whereas the naive see only the immediate, meaning that which is right in front of their eyes, the prudent see the end of the road. Right? They know where this leads. And so in foresight and in caution, they turn around while there's still time. But the naive, the foolish, they continue on and pay the price. Again, Proverbs 14, verse 16. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. He's cautious. He sees the road and he slows down. But the fool is arrogant and careless. He presses on. In other words, one sets down the road of blessing when they understand that there are many other roads that do not lead to blessing. That's the first step to obtaining blessing, is to realize that there are many other roads, many other options in life that ultimately do not end in blessing. 
As our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, narrow is the way that leads to life. Now a wise man or woman is careful and diligent to keep themselves on that narrow road and guarding themselves from turning away to the right or to the left. They shun all other roads except this one. Again, as the psalmist says, I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made an observation of my life. I considered my ways. I saw where I was going and I turned my feet. I altered my direction to walk in your testimonies. So, in the New Testament, it's less about taking the wrong road and more about not exposing oneself to unnecessary temptation. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, says the Apostle Paul, and make no provision for the, lust, or for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, one may not want to take that downward path. First walking, then standing, then sitting. But the flesh does. And so a wise person does not give opportunity for the flesh to have its way. They don't expose themselves to what the flesh craves, and so do not end up walking down that road. So, to take the downward path, one needs opportunity. And that opportunity presents itself in something rather benign and innocent. And that is in what one listens to. One sets down this downward path when they begin to give ear, the psalmist says, to the counsel of the wicked. Or as some of your translations read, the advice of the wicked. So the opportunity comes to walk down this path by what one listens to. Hence, we return to that original question that I had asked. What has your ear so that when it speaks, you listen? So that when it calls, you rise up and follow after it. Now, once again, there is a progression. It begins with thinking. You hear what is being spoken to you, and you begin to mull on it. It begins with thinking, which is walking, which leads to behaving, which is standing, which culminates in belonging, which is sitting. Now, it's not always a straightforward path in one's life, but ultimately, we become like what we listen to. First, you start listening to this counsel, then you start walking in this counsel, then standing in it, then ultimately sitting in it. Now, it seems uh, innocent, and in some cases it is what we listen to, yet what enters the ear, what has our ear, has a way of trickling to the rest of the person, right? It has a way of influencing everything about our lives. So, what then has your ear? Whatever it is, soon you will be walking in it, then standing in it, then ultimately sitting in it. And so the question to ask is, is its counsel leading you down a path that you want to go down? 
Is what you were listening to leading toward a life that you could look back upon and be pleased with? Now that said, right, this, this concept of, of, of being careful what we listen to, I want to be careful with it because I don't want to play into the hands of a, a panicky, sheltering attitude, right? I'm not advising that we burn books or break records or any of the other genius tactics believers have come up with throughout the years. However, that doesn't mean that we're to be naive and careless, which is the other extreme. Wisdom is neither reactionary nor is it reckless. But wisdom is far-sighted. It knows where this path terminates and whether or not it's profitable whether or not it's going to lead to blessing. And it's in that category, whether or not it's profitable, in which things need to be assessed. Is such and such a thing profitable? Meaning, does it propel me down the right road or not? We need to ask ourselves such questions. Again, as the psalmist said, I considered my ways. Now, if one spends their time listening to, <clears throat> excuse me, cable news or talk radio, they will soon walk and then stand and then sit in it. If one spends their time listening to uh, various forms of social media, they will walk and then stand and then sit in it. Whatever it is, music, friends, the inner critic inside, and etc., Whatever it is that we're listening to, walking, sitting, or rather standing and then sitting, is the unalterable pattern. What one listens to subtly and over time shapes our thinking. It shapes our conception of ourselves and the world around us. We begin to see it in terms of what we're listening to. We begin to see the world as it's described to us by whatever it is. And such thinking, when it begins to permeate our minds in the way we look at the world, then issues in behavior, whether good or bad, whether neither. And ultimately, that behavior leads to belonging, right? It creates an identity, and it creates a picture of the type of life that we think we want, walking, standing, and then Sitting, but it all begins with listening. So I ask, the text asks us, is it profitable? Do I want to be the kind of person whose life, whose character is formed by this thing that I'm listening to? Do I really want my life to be shaped by a talking head on TV or an influencer on social media or the lyrics to uh, a second-rate pop song or whatever it might be? B, am I being told the truth about my sexuality? Am I being told the truth about my relationship to others? Am I being told the truth about what is good and right? Or am I being led astray? Is what I'm listening to guiding me down a path that ultimately will not lead to blessing? So the call then of Psalm 1 is first to become wise and discerning. Blessed is the man or woman who does not. The call is to deafen our ears to what is unprofitable, the counsel of the wicked, 
and to open our ears, to heed, to listen to what is profitable. So that way, giving one's ear over to those things does not lead to blessing. Now, it might not be necessarily bad. It might not be necessarily harmful, but the truth is it doesn't lead to ultimate blessing. It doesn't lead to the highest good, and that's where our aim needs to be. So the question is, what does? What leads to the the greatest possible human experience in this life? Well, Psalm 1, now verses 2 and 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in due season, in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So if one wants blessing, not just what I want, not just what you want, not just, you know, kind of our own dreams for ourselves, but blessing. If one wants blessing, then one must open their ear to the scriptures. It's not found in the noise and nonsense that we consume ourselves with, but with the living water of the word. Thy lamp is, or thy word rather, is a lamp unto my feet, says the psalmist, and a light unto my path. In the midst of so much darkness and confusion, the word illumines one's surroundings and it points the way. It dispels the darkness and it says, this way lies blessing. This is the good way. Take this road. And so a person who treasures the scriptures in their heart, who meditates in them day and night, is tapped into something enduring. They're rooted in reality. Now, pictured in the psalm is a tree planted by channels of water. There is a stability and consistency about this kind of person. They bear fruit in season and their foliage is constantly green because they're near the source. They're tapped into that which gives life and nourishment. Now contrast that. Someone planted near streams of water with the wicked. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Now, in the botanical realm, what is more substantial than a tree planted by water? And what is more insubstantial than empty husks? The tree remains, and the husks are scattered by the slightest breeze. One is firm and fixed, immovable. The other is tossed here and there by the slightest breeze. So the contrast then is between stability and instability, reality and non-reality, the eternal and the temporary. The blessed have tapped into something real and the wicked have not. Thus, when the time of judgment comes, one will stand and the other will fall. One has built their life upon a foundation, a solid foundation, so that when the wind and the waves and the storm beat upon it, it stands. The other has built their life upon the sand, 
so that when that same storm comes, it crumbles. Now, in times past, in times past, um, there were theologians who said that God did not command certain things because they are right, but certain things are right because he commanded them. And I'll say that again. God did not command certain things because they're right, but certain things are right because he commanded them. So as it happens, God has commanded us to love him and to love one another, but he could have just as well commanded us to hate him and, love, and one another. And hatred would have been equally right. In other words, according to this conception, God and his commands are arbitrary. They're determined by nothing but his sheer preference, right? Might makes right. It's just because God said so, that's why it's right. Now, how does that strike you? What picture of God does that conjure up? The truth is just the opposite. God does not make up what is good, because he himself is goodness. He has not established his commands and told us that we should obey them simply because he wanted to, but because these commands, what were given in the scriptures, are in accord with his own nature. There's nothing arbitrary about it. And as with most things, C.S. Lewis, he gets it right. He says, he enjoins God, God enjoins what is good because it is good. Because he is good. Hence his laws have truth. Intrinsic validity. Rock bottom reality. Rooted in his own nature. And are therefore as solid as that nature which he has created. God's commandments set forth to us in the scriptures. Have rock bottom reality. And so a person who listens to them. And walks in them who meditates in them day and night, is tapped into the way things are, the way this world actually is, the way God created it in accordance with his own nature. And so their actions, one who hears the scriptures, one who feeds on the scriptures and then lives them out, their actions are going with the grain of things. How God made this world as a reflection of his own nature and not against that grain. And so going with the grain, going along with how God created things, there's blessing. One is living life, how it was intended to be lived. Hence, they're like a tree planted by water, enduring and strong. Once they were as thin and insubstantial as a husk, now tapped into this word of God which never passes away, They have a substance and weight about their lives. As the Apostle John says, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God, the person described here in Psalm 1, lives forever, abides forever, because they're founded upon the rock. And that's where this delight comes in. 
Right? Does that strike your ears as odd or strange? Who delights in the law of the Lord? It seems that those two things, commands and delight, don't go together. I can respect God's commands, right? I can see them and I can do my best to live in in accordance with them, but delight, right? I can honor them, but delight in the commands of the Lord. But there is delight. Having taken so many dead-end roads, there is a great joy in at last having found the one that leads to life. Having taken so many roads and not finding that which ultimately leads to blessing, now finding this road and hearing these commandments, don't do this, but do this. Live this way. There's delight. Again, because to those who have been listening to the counsel of the wicked, the scriptures are like fresh mountain water. They're like fresh air after having been in a dungeon. They're like sanity after a nightmare. And so there's genuine delight in the truth, in this way that God calls us to live, because it sets us free. After so much slavery, there's finally freedom. I can live how life was meant to be lived. Now, again, in that suggestive word, delight, we're talking about something more than drudgery or duty, right? Tuning our ear to the scriptures rather than to other voices is not like choosing a healthy salad over some pizza, something that one doesn't really want to have, but it's nevertheless good for them. So against my will, I'll do it. Right? It's not like plugging one's nose and swallowing down full of spoon of Robitussin because it's good for you. Rather, it's something that one actually wants to do. It's not a duty, but a desire. There's a delight. There's a joy. There's, there's something within this person compelling them to go and meditate on the Word. The Scripture becomes to them a bottomless pit of happiness and joy. It's a desire. Listen to how King David put it. Psalm, 1, or Psalm 19, rather, verses 8 and 10. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When was the last time you rejoiced? They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They are sweeter, uh, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Here in Psalm 19 is a soul thoroughly converted weaned from the lesser lesser pleasures of the world and satisfied upon the truth. The innermost part rejoices. Deep calls unto deep. Have you ever known such an experience? Rejoicing before the word of God. To this soul, God's will has become more desirable than gold. Right? What a statement. More desirable than gold and sweeter than even honey. As Job said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. It's become to Job his life. More than even what he needs to survive, he has the word. 
So the soul delights in the word of God, but more to the point, the soul delights in obedience to God's will. It is the highest point of the creature's existence. It is its greatest, greatest pleasure to walk in loving obedience to its creator. Right? Remember what Jesus said um, when his disciples went away to get him some food while he was at the well. Because he was tired from his journey. And they came back. And Jesus had just had this encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And the disciples have food now. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. They're like, what do you mean? And he says, my will, or my food rather, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Right? His, his very, I can't even find the words to describe it, the, 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 the great, the, the all, his everything of the Lord Jesus Christ was to do the will of the Father. That was his joy. That was his happiness. That was everything. So those are the heights, right? Something is described there that we, while well, we can only have glimpses of it seems sometimes. Those are the heights. We're here below, right? We're, one may know that the scriptures are their delight, right? Intellectually. Um, one may even desire to delight in the scriptures, but their experience is often something different. That duty and drudgery that we spoke about earlier. Right? One may be diligent in the scriptures oftentimes, but not out of this desire that propels them, but a sense of duty or it's just what we do. Rather than as something sweet to the taste, the scriptures are more comparable to the dentist's forceps in our ordinary experience. But here's the thing. One comes in the other. Delight suddenly springs from drudgery. And it's something like, you know, trying to think of an analogy here, I think it's something like developing one's um, palate, right? A, a taste for something other than um, sugar, right? So that initial glass of wine to um, a palate, someone's taste that's been reared on soda is not going to be all that enjoying, right? It's going to be, you're going to spit it out. But if one persists, right, if one's diligent to see it through, things will begin to change. And they'll develop a taste for it, right? And they'll begin to savor all the complexities and so on and so forth. And then they'll get a subscription and they'll be all fancy with their wine. But the scripture, the scripture is like that wine, right? It's a refined taste and it's suitable for adults, right? Maturation and not merely children. And us, as growing children, as we drink from it, it's not going to be immediately rewarding. One's spiritual palate, right? One's taste for higher things has to be disabused from cheap and earthly delights if it is to ultimately enjoy higher ones. So the point here is persistence, if one constantly gives up while their soul is being cultivated in the scriptures, while God is challenging, while God is, seems absent or all the above, if one constantly gives up in that situation, they're never going to delight in the scriptures. They're never going to take joy because they've left before the process could be completed. You see, we have to push through the drudgery and the monotony, believing 
But on the other side, there is a reward. Now, if you speak to anyone who's ever given themselves to the Scriptures, they'll tell you exactly that. It's not always delighting. You don't always get something from it. But if you do not push through those moments, you'll never enjoy the rich ones. You'll never arrive at the other side. The Scripture will remain to you a source of frustration, a source of confusion, rather than a source of delight and joy. Hence, as the psalm says, blessing comes to the one who meditates day and night. It does not come in an instant. It's not a commodity on tap that we can access at any moment. It's rather the culmination of consistent devotion. It cannot be obtained, this blessing, apart from remaining on this very specific path, following it to the end. You have to walk it to get it. Now, abide was the word that our Lord used. Abide. Staying seems to be an indispensable element. Turning up day and night, not merely once on a Sunday. Now, certainly, there are many things to be done to obtain this blessing. Namely, obedience. Right? We're not going to have this blessing if we don't obey. But the most important part, if one wants to attain blessing, is simply to stay in the Scriptures. Day and night, to abide, stay in the Scriptures. And as it happens, that requires quite a different lifestyle than the one that we're encouraged to lead in our modern world. And its frenetic pace and all its endless distractions, it leads us in an altogether different direction. A direction far from one in which we can meditate day and night in the Scriptures. Thomas Merton, someone I've come to really profit from, he puts it this way, The world we live in is dry ground for the seed of God's truth. A modern American city is not an altogether propitious place in which to try to love God. You cannot love Him unless you know Him, and you cannot come to know Him unless you have a little time and a little peace in which to pray and think about Him and study His truth. Time and peace are not easily... Um, come by in this civilization of ours. So it's not busyness, really, that's the problem, but it's distraction and preoccupation and never-ending interruption. And so the enemy surfaces in our life in rather subtle and deceptive ways. A notification on our phone while we're trying to read the scriptures and to meditate. Um, a weekend streaming binge of our favorite TV show on Netflix, a a dopamine addiction to scrolling through social media, another Sunday morning, Saturday morning at the office, or another soccer game on Sunday, right? On and on and on without any chance to pause and to meditate. One author uh, says this, sin and distraction have the same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even your own soul. Do you guys remember the Lord's words to Martha, who complained about her sister Mary, that she was not preoccupied and busy serving like her? 
right? She's doing all the work, and Martha's there sitting at the feet of Jesus. And the Lord responded, Luke chapter 10, verses 41 through 42, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Anxious and troubled. That's a good description of the life that we are encouraged to lead in our present time. Go, go, go. Don't stop. Keep going. More activities, more this, more that. And so we say to ourselves, there are so many necessary things that I have to get to, responsibilities at work, at home, and etc., the kids, and so on and so forth. And we cannot neglect these because we are responsible adults who make the world go round. And against those necessary things, and again, they are necessary, the Lord pits one supremely necessary thing that stands above all the others, and that is to sit at his feet as Mary had done. That is the necessary thing. So in order to obtain blessing, one must meditate day and night. And in order to meditate day and night, one must slow down and make room in their life. We are encouraged to live on the periphery of our being, as one author put it. Right? To live on like the outskirts of, of, of our own life. To, to be distracted and to be always out on the fringes and never in the center where our soul is. Right? That's where we need to dwell, in the center. And the specific practice envisioned to do so, to get back to the center, is meditation. And, and the word in, in Hebrew simply means to coo, right? Like, like a child, or, or uh, to growl, or even to, to mutter. And, and the picture that's given in meditation is someone mumbling under their breath, right? Mulling over and reciting to themselves the words of Scripture. Blessed is the man, right? In their own uh, quiet place, meditating to uh, and, and mulling over these words. Um, with the Lord. And again, not coincidentally, it's a slow picture. In meditation, not, not study or reading as such, but meditation, one marinates on the scriptures, right? massaging them, their words into one's soul. And it's a profoundly spiritual um, experience. It's more than receiving information and data. It's more than learning, you know, sentence structure and ancient words. But it's receiving the truth on an altogether different level, right? This is deep calling out to deep. It's this communion that, um, well, it's hard to even put words to. So we could go on, but the point is simple. What the psalm is telling us, meditate in the scriptures day and night. Give yourself over to this one necessary thing. Slow down, unclutter and pursue it, because therein lies blessing. Everything flows from this one great source. But there is another aspect of this psalm that we have altogether ignored, and we'll draw things down with this, and it is the Christological meaning of this psalm. There are a few indications in Psalm 1 that it was in fact written to a king, 
instructing him how to go about his reign. Now, I won't bore you with all the details, but the most obvious one is its similarity to the instruction given to Joshua before he was going to enter the promised land. Take Psalm 1 and and hear it refracted through this passage. This book of the law, the Lord says to Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So Joshua, he would learn true justice and righteousness by meditating on the scriptures. And thus he would become a prosperous ruler, having good success in all his undertakings. And so the king in Psalm 1, in fact, the king in Israel was commanded to copy the word of God uh, beginning to end. And he had his own personal copy, and he was to meditate on it day and night. It's not hard to imagine, right, how many wicked voices would have been competing to have the king's ear, to have their share of influence over the kingdom. But he was to listen to none but the scriptures, to take his handwritten copy and to pour over it. Right? Imagine how busy he was. Imagine how many things the king had to do, and yet God says, give your attention to this. Do this. And so by heeding the instruction of the scripture, together with the nation, he would be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. He would be a wise and a prosperous ruler. Now this calling, of course, for the kings of Israel was realized to greater and lesser extent in its history but never completely. In their own way, even the great kings were turned aside from the narrow way and they were seduced to do wickedness by wicked counsel. King David, King Solomon, King Josiah, King Hezekiah, all one way or another turned aside by the voice of the serpent. All took that downward path and all wound themselves up in the seat of scoffers. Now, according to its biblical usage, a scoffer is someone who thinks they know it all. And because of that, someone incapable of learning. A wise man accepts his father's discipline, King Solomon says, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A scoffer's ears are stopped to anything but their own counsel. They are, in other words, a great mixture of ignorance, thinking they know it all, and pride. Wise in their own eyes is the term that the scriptures use. And that is the fundamental human problem. An obstinacy, an irrationality fixed deep in our nature that insulates us from the truth, from hearing God's voice. And again, that was the first sin. Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit and determined for themselves good and evil. They were wise in their own eyes, and they did not fear the Lord. Now, buried somewhere within each one of us is a scoffer. Right? We've all taken our seat there. A voice that knows better. A voice that tells us, this is what you need. This is the life you should live. This is the way you should go. Right, that's what a scoffer is, right? I, I, I know it all. I scoff at other things. I laugh at them. This is the way. This is prosperity. And the scripture says that that smug know-it-all 
has more influence in our lives than we'd care to admit. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. They have stopped, or rather, they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops its ears so it does not hear the voice of its charmers. Though the Lord would charm us with his word, teaching us wisdom and instruction and blessing, though he would shepherd us with his voice, we strike at him like a cobra and we wander off like a sheep. Our ear is ultimately closed, right? At, at, at the end of the day, we can't hear. That's our problem. But there's someone whose ear is open. The prophecy of Isaiah chapter 50, verses 3 and 4. The Lord God has given me, who is this me? The tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain a weary one with the word. Listen, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn my back. Christ, our Lord, is the blessed man of Psalm 1, who has shunned the counsel of the wicked and delighted himself in the Scriptures. He, and he alone, is the tree firmly planted by streams of water, the tree of life, ever green and ever bearing fruit. His ear is open to the truth. He is no scoffer, but he listens to the voice of his Father, and he obeys, and therefore he prospers and has prospered in all that he's done. So blessing, ultimately, is not something that comes to us in our works, but in Christ. He is given to us his fruitfulness, overcoming our barrenness, his prosperity breaking through our desolation. A scoffer dwells within us, seeking to turn us aside, but so does Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. His open ear is ours. As all true prayer is letting Christ pray in us, so all true listening is letting Christ listen in us making his own ear always open to the Father, our own. So Christ has given us his blessed and prosperous life on the cross and in the resurrection. And of course now in the meal that he's called us to share. We consume the bread and drink the cup as our sustenance, the source of our life. Christ is our life, our blessing, our delight. He is our all. And so as I invite you to take the elements here in a moment, take them back to your seat, take time just in this moment to unclutter and to slow down, right? to commune with Christ in your innermost person and to receive his resurrection life once more.